Good evening. This is Cinema 60. On tonight's program, Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipkar discuss Polish art house cinema in the 60s. Świetnie, popatrz co tydzień jeśli my nie wpadliśmy na ten pomysł. Zawsze mówię więcej jarzyn, witaminy. Proszę. Dziękuję, mam. All right, welcome to Cinema 60. This is Bart speaking. And, uh, and I'm here with my co-host, Jenna. Howdy. And today we're going to talk about Polish cinema of the 60s. Hey, a Poland! <laughs> and I was I'm kind of worried that, uh, that people will be immediately turned off by the idea of Polish cinema. I mean, just, it seems depressing, even, you know, just, just the idea of it, you know, the... Eastern Europe, like you're behind the Iron Curtain and a lot of these movies people haven't heard about. But I'll be your lifeline because <laughs> Bart suggested this episode and I said, I don't even, I don't know anything about Polish films whatsoever. I'd seen maybe like two in my life. And uh, so I, I went into this totally blind. So I'm there with you. If you're, if you're like Polish cinema, who? That's me. I'm, I'm, I'm right there. We do have a Roman Polanski movie that we're, we're dealing with. So that's, I would imagine everybody's heard of him, but I can't think of too many other Polish directors anybody would know anything about. Krzysztof Kozlowski, maybe. Agnieszka Holland did, did some big stuff in the 80s and 90s, but... The only thing that I found familiar was that um, Krzysztof Komeda is the composer for three of the movies that we watched, and he is, I guess, known in, in jazz circles, but that's it. That's all I got. Yeah. I mean, I think across the board, these movies all had really great scores, even the, even the non-Komeda ones. So Poland is an interesting situation in that it sort of was most interesting before the 60s, you know, immediately before the 60s. In 1956, there was a thawing of Stalinism. Uh, Khrushchev had uh, sort of denounced Stalin who had died a few years before, but now Khrushchev had finally said, you know, a lot of the stuff that Stalin did, it wasn't so great. We're going to, you know, things are, things are going to get better around here. And Poland was the first of the you know, socialist countries to sort of respond to that in, the, in a positive way and, and decide that, uh, oh, we're going we're gonna to give uh, our artists a lot more freedom to do whatever they want. And uh, one of the, uh, the first things that happened was there was a, a state-sponsored school for for filmmaking and uh, there was a real push to stop making all of these um, socialist realist movies where it's all you know propaganda where they're just trying to push the the benefits of socialism and uh, you know every every movie is uh, you know the, the, the people win in the end and uh, capitalism was uh, treated as uh, you know, was was always the loser, and so Poland decided. Well, we're, we 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 uh, we're going to take advantage of this artistic freedom and 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 talk about the realities of of Poland. But you you can't uh, you can't discuss what's going on in Poland right now. You're, you're going to have to turn to the past to uh, to discuss the the Polish character and, and you know some of the the tough places we've been, the the uh, some of the, some of the moral decisions we we've had to make in the recent past. 
you know, specifically the, in, during World War II, you know, follow this uh, this sort of Italian neorealist strain of showing the the realities of, of World War II and, and really, you know, kind of celebrate the, the 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 Polish freedom fighters and you know talk about the the Warsaw Uprising. But there was also this idea that that you wanted to stay away from subjects like the uh, the unrest of young people and, and and what Poland is is like right now because you're too liable to sort of uh, get get into that sticky territory of uh, is 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 socialism working in the in the here and now. So um, yeah, it's funny <laughs> how that always seems to happen, right? But um, as a result, there were some really great films being made, um, in particular by uh, Andrei Vida. Who uh, will be will be covering one of his movies from 1960, Innocent Sorcerers? But before that, he made a, a very famous trilogy of films, lo- loosely connected trilogy, uh, the War Trilogy, which included A Generation, Canal, and Ashes and Diamonds. Ashes and Diamonds probably being the uh, the most well known and you know, beloved Polish film from the era, and, and turned Zbigniew. Um, Cebulski, uh, a Polish star who we'll see a lot of in, in some of these movies we watched for this week's episode, uh, turned him into a, to a big star, an internationally known star. And uh, there were quite a few other directors who came out of the Lodz Polish Film School, uh, Wojciech Haas, uh, Jerzy Kavalerowicz, Andrzej Monk, and we're, we're going to be looking at some of the 60s films that, that each of them made. So the point of what I'm saying is that Poland didn't really have a new wave in the 60s the way that a lot of European countries did. They had uh, they got a lot of international attention before the 60s for these films that explored the Polish character, but they were still, you know, very story-based and more formalist. They're not, you know, they weren't uh, so uh, footloose and fancy-free as a lot of the French New Wave or, you know, even the, the Czech New Wave that happened uh, in, the, in the 60s you know, right next door to Poland. Um, you know, there's sort of more more international cinema along the lines of what Bergman was doing in the 50s, I guess. It's uh, a lot of symbolism, but not a lot of, you know, youthful energy. And there's a strong literary tradition in Poland. Poles are very proud of their of their literature, so a lot of the, the films that were being made were based on these great Polish literary works. So that's part of why their movies remain so uh, so story based and and sort of literary in in their conception. Um, you know, it's still very visually exciting, but there is this sort of literary inspiration to them that 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 kept them in this uh, you know very you know, formalist vein. Towards the end of the '60s, uh, we'll see a couple of a uh, couple of guys like. Uh, like Jerzy Skalamowski and Krzysztof Zanussi, who, who were you know started making films in more of a of a new wave vein. But most of what we're we're going to be talking about, you know, with Polish cinema in the '60s, are these these guys who got a lot of attention in the late '50s and were continuing to make you know some some great films in the '60s. But in general, the the state of Polish cinema in the '60s was not great. They weren't making very many movies each year, um, and a lot of what they were making were, you know, just just crowd pleasers. Nothing, nothing of much artistic importance. Um, but the movies that you chose here is sort of like so. This is kind of like a this seems like a 101 of uh, who's who of of Poland in the '60s a little bit. 
from what I can tell, because you also chose a range starting from 1960 to, to 269. Right, yeah. I, I mean, I definitely chose all of the best-known Polish films from that era and where there wasn't, where some of the bigger directors didn't have a particularly well-known film in the 60s, like Andrzej Wajda. I chose something that's, you know, particularly interesting, like uh, like Innocent Sorcerers, which which is our first movie, and uh, was actually rejected by the Polish people <laughs> and, the, and the and the Polish government. The par- the party didn't like it because it deals with with young people and uh, and, and current times, and it was uh, you know kind of came and went really quickly. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say this is basically the opposite of what uh, you just said <laughs> they were asking for. You know, is it, this actually, I, I was pretty uh, impressed with Innocent Sorcerers. Um, you know, it's, it, it to me, it felt like um, breathless completely. Yeah, it has a real Godardian feel to it. And I guess that, um, that these Polish filmmakers had not really seen many of the... Uh, of the French New Wave films yet, um, you know, just, you know, 1959, 1960 is when French New Wave was starting to get a lot of attention, and, and this movie, Innocent Sorcerers, is, it was kind of created independently of that. The uh, And they came out in the same year. Right. And it's very self-conscious, it's self-referential in the way that Godard is. I mean, at one point in this film, the, the song comes on the radio, a song comes on the radio, and the announcer says... And now the theme song from Innocent Sorcerers. So right. it's, it's it's kind of playful in that way. And it, well, anyway, this this movie is about two two young people. One one is a um, one is a sports doctor slash jazz drummer um, who you're. That's what you are too, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, but it's actually it is what the the screenwriter. Uh, Jerzy Skolomowski was. He, uh, he was a boxer and, and, and went to medical school and uh, you know, was a jazz drummer. So it's, it's very... We'll, we'll talk about one of his films that he directed later uh, called Barrier, but this movie is very much along the same lines as, as, uh, as the movies that he made himself and then, you know, very autobiographical. Um, but this guy, he refers to himself as Basili later in the in the film, but he doesn't really have a name. He's just sort of our main character. But he's a he's sort of a womanizer, and you know, different different woman every night, and um, you know, won't uh, won't answer the calls of of uh, of women who are um, you know from previous nights who who are, who are trying to you know hang out with him again and. Um, so kind of a sleaze ball, but he and he looks kind of like if David McCallum and Daniel Craig had a child. <laughs> yeah, bleach blonde hair. Um, I, I guess I can see his. Uh, he's, he's got a bit of physical appeal, I guess, but uh, not my type. Well, exactly. he's a doctor <laughs> and a jazz drummer. Yeah, that's true. but he um, he sort of has this um, this accidental flirtation with with, with a girl that uh, he meets at a club with uh, with his friend played by. Uh, Zbigniew Zabulski, 
and uh, it's actually uh, Edmund Zbigniew who who is trying to pick her up, but but uh, but Basili actually kind of ends up with her accidentally, and they have sort of a flirtation, and uh, you know, she's she's pretty strong-willed and and doesn't. Uh, how, how would you how would you characterize their relationship, Basili and Pelagia? I mean, it really it really is it's it's. Um... It's breathless. <laughs> it's like two people sitting around a studio apartment talking about philosophy and, and flirting with each other. And uh, Pelagia, uh, what was her act? Uh, Christina? The the actress's name, who didn't go on to do much, is Christina. But maybe that was her character name as well. I'm not sure. No, but, but Christina, the actress, I mean, like, she was great. She was really wonderful. I mean, like, she has these, like, bright eyes and a sly smile and... Uh, I was actually impressed at how, I mean, she kind of had a Shirley MacLaine vibe in a way. Yeah. You know, she's very, she's very, uh, forward and, um, kind of knows what she wants and kind of leads, you know, she, she sort of leads the, the womanizer on, uh, and plays his game just as well as he's playing the game. And I think that's the, his fascination with her. See, I was sure you were going to accuse her of being a manic pixie dream girl and not like her. <laughs> well, I mean, she is, but she was, but she was charming. Um, like, she is a manic pixie dream. Girl. <laughs> I like that. Oh, I like that she knows what she wants. You know, like the character. I mean, but all of the characters in this felt very. Um, they they felt pretty sketchy. There, there's they're not like not like creepy, but just like like broad. You know, there's no one's too specific. It wasn't that. Um, Basil, uh, what was his name? Basilia. Bas- yeah, Basili. Uh, they they take on these these Russian literary names. They they introduce themselves with, the, with these fake names, but we don't know them by any other name. So that's that's what we're kind of forced to call them. I think. Yeah, I mean, like it worked. It worked for me on like a Godard level because like n- no one is really so specific. Like you can't point to him and be like, ah, oh, yes, and and he gets this like you know intense feeling of longing. He kind of doesn't. I mean like they have like there there was really more in their conversation about philosophy than there was in the characters themselves. But um you know it was it was stylish and it was and it was intriguing. You know, it was like the the fun of a uh, night with a stranger, I guess. <laughs> Well, and a lot of their philosophizing had to do with the the nature of love, and they're they're sort of deconstructing what uh, what a night of flirtation and sex is is all about, and how and then the various steps they actually take out a piece of paper and say, okay, first we'll do this, and then next we'll do this, and then maybe we'll kiss, and and sort of the, actually the what ends up happening. I mean, I guess this is a bit of a spoiler, but uh, what what really separates this from Breathless is that there is no sex. I mean. Part of right. what's exciting about Breathless is, you know, these, you know, they're they're in and out of bed. The, the the you know this this young attractive couple and they're having conversations and then you know resuming the lovemaking and and but whereas this this movie is sort of it postpones the uh, you know the the sexual gratification um, and uh, maybe that's what I liked about it actually. <laughs> I like I like that you 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 know there's this promise of something that never happens. Uh, she even they even play strip poker, uh, not poker, but like play like a game that's essentially strip poker, and uh, she's ready to take her top off, and he tells her, "No, I'm a gentleman," and and tells her to put her clothing back on, and you're just waiting and waiting for these two to to like you know go for it, and it never happens, and then 
and then she sort of disappears and then you know he's like searching for her you know like the whole thing is very much about this sort of uh more about longing than it is about getting anything even at the the movie ends with those like airplane noises right yeah you know which which to me seems like also like a, a desire to es- escape which is probably what the the you know censors didn't like <laughs> the whole the, i mean the whole movie feels very western you know it feels very french it feels very uh you know like like a young person who's who's uh itching to get out into the world and do something and and matter yeah it's not exactly critical of the of the Polish state, but it's, uh, you know, there, there's this sort of aimlessness and, and, and general dissatisfaction that just goes hand in hand with being young, I think. Uh, we've also got some interesting cameos in this movie. Roman Polanski plays one of the, the yeah, jazz musicians, um, one, of the, one of the boxers that, uh, that Basili examines and says, you can't box today because of this cut over your eye. That, he's played by Jerzy Skolomowski. Is Christoph Komeda, one of the the musicians as well. I could be wrong about that, but I think so. Yeah, he did the music, which was great, actually. I mean, I thought the the jazz score was really pretty. It it helped elevate the movie for sure. Yeah, it's it's short and slight, and it's got a great soundtrack, and it it moves along with this you know this fun conversation and this flirtation, and there's not a whole lot to it, but it's it's really enjoyable, enjoyable in a in a, in a new wave sort of way, even though this it's not typical at all of of other things that were being made at the time or or typical at all of anything else that Andre Vida was making yeah it was certainly funny to to start for for me you know again coming into this with not much information <laughs> with no information actually uh i went in totally blind uh to for as our experiment here and um for this to have been the first movie uh, this like set my expectations of oh I guess Poland had a new wave, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which then of course they didn't. And then it's interesting just that you say that this wasn't very popular because it it feels again I mean that that this this if you had told me that someone you know went to France saw Breathless came back to Poland and then like like kind of butchered their translation from French into Polish and then the guy wrote this movie like I would totally believe you. Or if you said like, yeah, Godard like had like a stint in Poland, I would be like, cool, you know, like it really, it really fits into that um, whole vibe. So it, it is funny, at least that you know that, uh, and and the interesting parallel thinking that this came out in the same year. Yeah, and from what I've read, at least I don't know about Vida, but but Skolomowski, the screenwriter, had never didn't see any Godard until the, the late '60s, so. There was no direct inspiration, just just drawing from the same well, I suppose. So next on our list is uh, Mother Joan of the Angels, which is a bit more typical of Polish cinema. The, the state board of film censors were willing to embrace this movie, even though it's uh, it's very Catholic. 
it's it's definitely not um, you know buying into uh, this socialist idea of, of there being no God. I actually thought this movie was sort of well, I couldn't I couldn't make up my mind on if I thought that this was actually a, a, like an anti-religious movie. It definitely could be interpreted either way. I think if you you could you could easily come out of this movie thinking that it's all of the the religious hysteria is just you know an excuse for people behaving badly. But this this movie is about a, a a convent where all of the nuns, except one, are are possessed by the devil, and and Mother Joan of the Angels, the uh, the the Mother Superior, is actually uh, possessed by eight demons. And, and I'll say, based on the the whole uh, the devils of of Luden uh, event that happened in the 1600s, which you might know if you enjoy movies. Uh, was depicted also in Ken Russell's The Devils in 1971. Yeah, in a sense, this is kind of a sequel, a sequel. to yeah. uh, to Ken Russell's The The Devils, which was made later. Because in this movie, the a a priest comes to town. You know, one of many priests who has has come to town to try and sort out the situation to exercise the demons from this convent. He arrives, and um, the a priest who who the town had. Um, convicted of bringing the the devil to uh to this convent has has been burned at the stake and uh this this priest that has already been burned at the stake before the events of this movie is is the priest played by oliver reed in the devils full circle man yeah but um yeah i don't think either of us enjoyed this movie uh nearly as much as we enjoy the devils Oh yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> but it it is interesting, and it's definitely um, symbol heavy and and very um, beautiful to look at. You know, it's it's very painterly the the way that the the images are are presented on screen, and it's it's hard not to get sucked into to how visual the movie is. But it's you know it's mining kind of a Bergman territory, not not quite so atmospheric, but. Uh, what did you think? It was. I thought this was an interesting movie. I mean, like there is, you know, you're following this um, this priest who, uh, in some ways, doesn't seem like he really wants to be investigating this demonic possession. <laughs> the landscape uh, was ridiculous. It looks like the moon. Like they look like they built a set on the moon and shot this movie. I guess they they actually shot it in like a a dump or something. <laughs> I was looking that up because I was like, "Where is this? Like, it just—it's it, so desolate and 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 weird." And uh, yeah, it's a very barren landscape, and you've got this sort of castle-like convent right in the middle of nothing. That initial meeting of this uh, priest, yeah, Yosef, and the main possessed nun, Joan, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, who looks a little bit like and bancroft yeah i thought so too emma stone eyes Mm -hmm. or something and she's great she was really good in this i mean this initial meeting it's like very calm and clear and he's like hey i'm here to like get rid of your demons you know (laughs) like it's real real chill and she's like oh okay you know wonderful and then she like turns her back and then like as she's walking out suddenly like something like goes weird and she starts walking backwards and like hugging the walls and it reminded me of this sort of like scenes in in kafka's the castle (laughs) (laughs) this whole thing was a bit like the castle in some ways but he except he makes it to the castle but that she sort of like starts to walk backwards and she's you know come at him with crazy eyes it was creepy it was actually really well done like yeah 
Uh, and there's other scenes too where she's like, I'm possessed. And, and the way that she just moves and the way that she gets these sort of wild eyes, you're, you know, when, when you see, uh, Yosef back up into the wall and in, in fear, you're like, yeah, yeah no. <laughs> but then to dispel the idea that this is an actual demon possession, the, uh, the, I, I think the gypsy at the tavern is the one who says, oh, the old soot trick where she, she rubs the soot on her leg and then leaves a handprint on the wall. That's a... That's I know that old trick. Right. Yeah. No. There's. It's interesting because there are these moments. I, but then it's it's sort of what I, I I actually I mean I like this movie, but I was just I couldn't tell if this was a subversive movie or not because there's a lot of weird um, points to it. I mean, number one, the fact that Mother Joan has a, a couple of speeches about how she enjoys being possessed and that she wants Satan. She wants either to be inhabited by Satan to let her. And, and basically whenever she's in, like possessed, she's just, she's just doing stuff to piss off all the men. <laughs> <laughs> like all of the other nuns in this convent are totally like they're, they're thrilled with like being able to cackle and turn in circles and go nuts. They're all like having a grand old time. It's sort of disturbing, but it's never, they, they never seem disturbed. They're all pretty thrilled about this possession. <laughs> yeah. Whereas all of the men who are coming in to stop them are very like, you know, really upset about this and, and very serious and very stoic, including um, Yosef. Yeah, I mean, I I think Mother Jones' issue is that she's she feels like, oh, I've I've locked myself away for my entire life in this convent. So if I if I can't be a saint, if I can't distinguish myself in the world by being the the holiest of holy, what other choice do I have but to totally embrace the devil, being you know em- embracing the any any evil that's inside of me and. Uh, yeah, which is like a great point, yeah. quite frankly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, she says that she either, I want Satan or I want to be a saint. Like, that's her, that's like it. She's like, why, I don't understand why I should be suffering in this way unless I, I'm known. She talks about how, you know, to be a saint is to be spoken of forever and to live on truthfully, to to have eternal life through being mentioned on other people's lips and, and, and being uh, known so, yeah, if you can't be immortal, then why the heck wouldn't you just go freaking nuts and enjoy yourself <laughs> considering you're locked up anyhow? And I was like, yeah, that's this, that's fine. I don't blame you. <laughs> well, the, I mean, the question you were asking about whether this was subversive or not is um, really kind of moot because this is a case of a, a movie that's based on a on a beloved piece of Polish literature. So, you know, as long as it's... It's faithful to the novel or the novella. I, I think the uh, the Polish government was, uh, was cool with with whatever it had to say. Well, there's some other interesting things too. I mean, Yosef goes to a rabbi when he uh, he's not making getting through to Joan. He's he's witnessed a whole bunch of really creepy uh, possession scenes, or so he finds very creepy, and he is like clearly losing not losing his faith but losing more his faith in himself and and his ability to solve the problem that he set out to come and solve and so he goes to a rabbi and the rabbi is played by the same actor so you have this like split screen of the two of them uh, a priest and a rabbi discussing you know what what they're going to do which i thought was already pretty wild and interesting yeah it's also the point where the movie kind of loses me dramatically like I, i feel like the this is sort of the the climax uh, where where Yosef realizes what he has to do to save Mother Joan, who he's fallen in love with at this point. And the the rabbi says, uh, you know, look look to yourself. So 
Father Yosef decides to take these, these demons into himself. And it's performed admirably. I love all the performances in this movie, but at this point, the, the religious aspect and how in the way that Yosef embraces Satan and, and you know, kills some people, I, it just, it, it, it loses me dramatically. It's not quite, I don't, I don't quite buy it. I, I, maybe I missed something. And this is the second time I've seen this movie too, and I think it, it bothered me more this time that the, you know, the way, the way this film wraps up is, is pretty unsatisfying. Well, that was the thing that I couldn't, I couldn't decide on. And I was actually hoping that you would tell me. <laughs> because the fact that, yeah, the, the movie ends with him deciding that the only way that he can save uh, Joan, and this is after this conversation where she says, I either want to be a saint or I want to be Satan. Uh, he decides that the only way that, and, and now suddenly he's being tempted by her. He finds himself falling in love with her, which is also kind of interesting that he starts to sort of, you know, he's like kissing her hand and stuff and then immediately goes and, and whips himself several hundred times. Uh, but basically at the end, his morals are that he now has to inhabit these demons. So he then goes and kills two innocent people uh, and then says like, well, they're they're going to heaven. It's fine. And now, and now I've taken on her burden. So now she's saved, which number one doesn't make any sense, but... <laughs> But it also, but it does, you know, it's like a really weird, twisted sense of morals. Like, that's where, where I was sort of like, does this mean that in order to be a good Christian, which is what he's trying to do, right? He's trying to to, to take on her sins. Uh, you have to then kill someone, <laughs> <laughs> which which felt like a deeply anti-Christian uh, or if not even anti-religion uh, kind of point, uh, because you know, obviously, I'm sure that any anyone and, and I guess and neither of us are, are uh, you know, I guess have the knowledge unless unless you got some some of that good Catholic knowledge hidden away. But I, I don't know, like, I don't think any any Christian would be like, yeah, no, this makes sense. Obviously not. But, you know, but it does make sense in as far as his logic. So like, I did kind of get it. I mean, like, in some ways, it sounds like she sort of, you know, brought him over to her side of thinking by saying, what's the point? <laughs> well, I mean, And then this guy already is, is spiraling. So, you know, but on an intellectual weird, on an intellectual basis, I appreciate it. I, I totally see that, um, you know, this is the devil acting in him. He has cured her by taking the devil into himself. And it's not a good Christian act. It's just him you know, thinking it's for the, I, yeah, I mean, I guess you're right. And I think that's why it feels a little confused dramatically. It's, it's that. Um, and we don't get any sense that, that she is cured. That's the other thing that was kind of interesting. Like it would be one thing if he was like, I took in the, the demon and now she's good. Uh, that doesn't happen. We don't know what happens with her whatsoever, actually. And so, I mean, either it's a movie about a fa like someone who, who tries and fails and then Satan wins, <laughs> which, which is also kind of a, a crazy ending for, for a, a Catholic movie. Or I don't know. I, can, I mean, maybe this is a little bit like first reformed 1960s. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess in the end, what it is is that you're devoting yourself to God and religion is will drive you crazy. And that that it is a you know, it does does support the uh, the socialist message that there is no God and you just need to li live by your instincts and live for what's best for for everyone. But uh, but God, you know, if you if you try and bring God and, and religion into it, you'll you'll just end up driving yourself crazy.
Yeah, literally. <laughs> <laughs> so that was 1961. The following year, in 1962, Roman Polanski made his debut feature, Knife in the Water, and actually the only feature film he made in Poland, his only Polish... He made several Polish-language shorts before this, but this is his only Polish-language film. This, like Innocent Sorcerers, was written by Jerzy Skolomowski, or co-written, I guess. He, he and Roman Polanski wrote it together. And it's uh, just uh, really a chamber piece. A, uh, a bourgeois couple, Andre and Christina, are going to, uh, to go sailing on their, on their boat. And they, they pick up a, a young hitchhiker on their way. And... Um, He's sort of curious about their boat, and they end up inviting him along to go sailing with them because he's never done it before. And Andre is already kind of, you know, threatened by this guy. He wants to teach this young kid who doesn't understand anything about life and uh, masculinity and um, why the older generation is better than the younger generation. He'll 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 show him a thing or two on on the sailing trip. And yeah, so the, the movie is just this a, a chamber piece. These three characters and their sort of battle of wills, and it's a, a pissing contest between the boy and Andre, and, uh, and and Christina is just kind of witnessing all of this and, and not not too pleased with either one of them, and, uh, and you hated it. <laughs> I didn't like it. I don't like it. <laughs> I thought it was perfect. I, it had me, like, it was, this is the second time I've seen this one as well, and I liked it more the second time. It, uh, it just... This sort of close scrutiny of, of of people's behaviors and is is it really appeals to me and the and the cruelty of it I, I guess appeals to to something in my nature as well and uh, I don't know it's it's not a <laughs> let's talk more about that yeah, I don't know I don't know who hurt you to. Bart no I I, I think I, I I like watching people be cruel to each other on, on the screen so that I don't have to do it in real life, that I can just be kind and, and nice to everyone all the time. Well, I mean, the movie shot, it's shot beautifully. For, a, you know, a directorial debut, um, it's certainly, I mean, it's short, which I appreciated, uh, but it felt long as hell. But, um, <laughs> it, you know, like they shoot the whole thing on a yacht, right? Or not a yacht, but like a, a sailboat in the water so you know that i technically there was a lot of very interesting camera work uh some really beautiful like there's those shots of them out on the water where uh they're looking down from from the the sail like the top of the mast uh Mm -hmm. seeing everyone on the deck splayed out and they're they look almost like they look like uh like abstract art the way that everyone's laid out it's just like figures you know on this very narrow triangle of a boat with the with the ocean behind it um, that was beautiful. And none of it seems self-conscious. I mean, all the Polanski really knows what he's doing with the camera. You're never, it's, you're never feeling like, oh, this guy's just showing off. It's like every, every shot seemed 
really well designed and and you know was there for a purpose i don't know i thought it was tight and i was gripped the whole time i so i don't oh it's too i, I totally <laughs> totally plotless and and really pretentious what I, you, I didn't like ex- this movie at all like explain pretentious why did you why did you think it was pretentious god it's <laughs> like it's like man it's just like a it's like a knife in the water man it's like you know like what are you gonna do like it's just like a knife and like then there's some water like you can't even like use that you know it's, it's like... a symbol <laughs> all of these movies are so symbol heavy if there's one thing that connects all of these polish movies we watch it's like it's all metaphor and symbol and knife in the water is a good one it's like what is there a knife on the water has no function although it, it ends up saving them when they have to cut the the line on the yeah, sail. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it has a lot of function. There's like a completely like, like that, that speech just reminded me of Dennis Hopper in Apocalypse Now where he's like, you can't land on the moon with fractions, man. Like what are you going to land on? Like three quarters, one eighth or whatever, man. Like, you know, that's it. totally useless. The, never mind that like this, this young guy, you say that he doesn't know anything about masculinity. I mean like that, you, you uh, called the movie earlier when we <laughs> talked about it you called it a, a perceptive per- perfectly uh, paced pissing contest it's definitely a pissing contest this movie and but it's like to watch a pissing contest for you know even an hour and a half or an hour and 20 minutes or however long this is was like too much i mean like it's just two shitty guys you have the older um like boorish husband who, uh, you know, bullies his wife around and she just kind of, uh, you know, takes it. And then you have this young guy who is just a total moocher creep. And then he gets invited to this boat. He already doesn't like this guy. And then the the guy is like, you know, what are you, what are you, chicken? You don't want to come on a boat with us for hours? Like, and the guy's like, yeah, all right, I'll do it. Like, why? Why are you on this boat to begin with? You just want to take advantage of the fact that you've probably never been on a boat. Like, this guy was just constantly mooching off of this couple who are already a bad couple. And then the wife's totally, like, totally useless. She has absolutely no point other to be an object that's that's then won over by one or the other. And of course, like, you know, the, the climax of this is that uh, the, the two of these guys jockeying for um, whatever, the, the man trophy, and, uh, you know, the, then the young guy gets uh, knocked off by mistake into the water. He says he can't swim, and then they think they've killed him, uh, which, by the way, is interesting, but takes place like like a full hour into the film like from then before that all it is is just like glamour shots <laughs> of them in the water i mean like there's nothing there's no tension i barely even understood that there was this like jockeying between the two of them to such a degree only until the end because they end up getting stuck out on the boat and then this guy sitting there bitching about i don't want to be out here i want to go back to the land where i can use my knife like I, dude then why'd you get on a boat <laughs> Because he has something to prove. It's the battle of the generations. Just like, you know, all of these 60s movies. He didn't even seem that much younger, though. He said he was, he didn't look 18, but I think we're supposed to think that the kid is 18. And the, you know, the, the, the Andre is, you know, if, if not 40, close to 40. I was actually, what I didn't remember was how, for a good half of this movie, they're on this boat having a good time. Like it's an enjoyable sailing trip for, you know, there, there'll always be like some some little bit of tension that uh, that that interrupts the, the the fun that they're having. But you know, they're it's you know for a good half of the movie, you're just having a good time on a boat. What's wrong with that? 
<laughs> well, that's what I kind of liked it. I started to like it at the point where I thought, okay, you know, maybe they're going to like learn to get along and, and, you know, we'll have a little disaster and then whatever, and they'll fit, they'll work it out. And then it just turned into this stupid thing. I mean, like it, it felt like uh, Roman Polanski saw Purple Noon and was like, I can do that. And then just kind of failed at doing that. It's a very different kind of tension in this movie, I think. It is. But it's also very sim. I mean, like a murder or not happening on a boat only a couple years after Purple Noon. Like, uh, you know, it felt like at least an influence. They're definitely not the same movie. That might be why a second time through increased my estimation of it because I didn't have the expectations of of it being a, a, a murder movie necessarily I, 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 I went into it knowing that it's it's just this you know fairly quiet closely observed story of these three characters and, and their and their behaviors and their and their their tensions and you know I wasn't waiting for anything major to happen so maybe that maybe that's how you have to approach this movie yeah I'm, I'm sure that that is a big part of it <laughs> <laughs> it's got a killer ending though i love the ending of the movie it's so it's such a great damned if you do damned if you don't christina in the end finally really puts the screws to her husband who's just always dominates her he, he's much older than she is and and you know is always telling her what to do and you know she's she's had to latch on to to this this wealthy man because what else is there to do and when she finally has a has a conversation with the with the boy away from Andre, who, who's uh, who swum to shore to to call the police because it, he thinks that the that the kid is drowned. She says that you know you'll you'll be just you'll be just like my husband. You'll uh, you'll make him a lot of money. You'll become bourgeois just like my husband. That's you know you've got the the same masculine drive and energy and and you know you're you want to you want to dominate and uh, so you're. You, you're really just the same. There's not this, there isn't this, uh, this. And then she rewards him by, by screwing him on the boat. Well, is that a reward or, or something she's been wanting to do the whole time? I, I like, I didn't get any sense of that other than now she, this was her moment of having a, this big blowout with her husband for having murdered. Him. <laughs> <laughs> and then she figures screw it literally and screws him. But, uh, I mean, yeah, I, you know, he is, they, they're, the two of these, these two guys are the same guy, you know, they're, they're just like a slightly different take on the same jerky personality. And I guess, you know, like as a, as a film for, for like what you're saying, you know, as, as a movie about three people on a boat, it's, it's a good movie. I can 100% see why Roman Polanski went on to have a successful career after making this, especially as a first movie. It's very impressive. Um, I just, I just don't care about these guys. Like, I don't really care about this story. I, don't, I didn't feel that it was damning enough. I felt that the ending, even where the husband uh, thinks that he's still murdered this guy, um, and he sort of learns his lesson slightly, but you don't really get the sense that, like, anything's totally going to change, you know? And in fact, it looks like he's probably not going to go to the cops, and, and now her life's probably going to be just as miserable, even if she had this one moment of uh, fling, if, if that was positive. I mean, I just... And then the guy just goes off into the woods to, like, you know... Use, use his, his knife. knife. or whatever <laughs> the hell, yeah. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. all right, you know, like, fine. Like, I just... It, there just wasn't anything here that, that gripped me whatsoever. Well... I don't. I don't blame you. I'll just chalk it up to this. This being my jam and not your jam. Maybe when I'm older and wiser, I'll. <laughs> and and uh, you know, care less about the portrayal of women on screen. Maybe that's when you'll like it more. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, 
and I'll say, you know, uh, you know, I, here we are doing a, a 1960s podcast. Like if, if every movie that, you know, was shitty to women, uh, I immediately wrote off and hated, then we could not do this podcast. That's, that is true. <laughs> But in this particular movie, it, it frustrated me because she did, there was just no other point to her, you know, and it didn't it just to me, it felt like it bought further into the misogyny that the movie seems to be putting down and, and criticizing. So I don't know, it just didn't really I didn't think that the movie was successful in any point it was trying to make. But I felt that she was kind of the narrator of the film, that it was all kind of from her perspective and all the all the all the loving shots of uh, of the of the kid's bare chest while he's sunbathing were meant to be from her perspective and you know she's just watching without her there this you know you wouldn't have this escalation of this this battle of masculinity of course but you're also seeing how childish they are because she's watching and and just being irritated by the whole thing that's very true but yeah. So you should have you should have written it. <laughs> I couldn't have done a better job, honestly. I think this movie is not just perfect for what it is, but but perfect for what I want from a movie. It might be my favorite Polanski movie. But I did like the next movie, uh, which was which was interesting and an unfinished movie, right? Passenger. Right. From Andrzej Monk, uh, one of the Polish film school guys, um, died in a car crash before he could finish this film. He died in a car crash coming from Auschwitz. And he was Jewish and he survived living in Poland through the Holocaust. Yeah. Can I just say how depressing that is? Yeah. I, I, it's, he didn't really have a very prolific career either. He's got uh, you know, several movies that are highly regarded. Eroica, uh, Man on the Tracks, Bad Luck, and this, like basically four movies, and one of them, his what was supposed to be his masterpiece, was is left unfinished. But what's what's left is so good and worth seeing that it it's you know we can be we can be glad that somebody decided to gather the footage that was there and, and try and complete it as close to his wishes as possible. But uh, yeah, you well you I I think you like this one a bit more than I did. I, I I mostly just didn't like that it was so driven by the narration and and clearly unfinished that it, it didn't wasn't quite as satisfying as I would want it to be as a as a standalone movie. But uh, you know, there's a, a ton of great stuff. It was shot um, number one very interestingly. It was actually shot in Auschwitz. So this is a movie that's about you know obviously it's about uh, the the Holocaust. The plot is that a female German ex uh, SS overseer. Uh, after the war, she's on a cruise with her husband, and then she sees a woman uh, boarding the ship that looks exactly like one of the prisoners that she had working under her when, when she was uh, stationed in Auschwitz. So the film is sort of structured. Uh, everything on the cruise is, was unfortunately the stuff that I guess wasn't shot, or there was. they have photographs of the actors. Oh, yeah. Well, I guess it was shot, and, and Monk didn't like it, didn't, didn't think it turned out well, so oh. he wanted to reshoot it, but... So they used stills from what was shot to, to try and 
recreate the beginning and more more to to monk's wishes so you have the narration from from liza who's the german woman and initially she's giving her husband because she you know she's so she's so um shocked by seeing this familiar face that she tells her husband a, a very sort of glossed over story about how kind she was to this prisoner marta and how marta basically took advantage of her kindness you know <laughs> As, as they do. And then as the cruise goes on, I guess more details start to emerge. So then you start to get a, a more complete picture of, of the story, which, you know, proves that that uh, this, the German woman was, in fact, you know, surprised, uh, jealous and malicious and calculating uh, towards all of these prisoners. You know, obviously doesn't she's not particularly cruel, <laughs> but that's not saying too much for, you know, uh, an overseer of prisoners in Auschwitz. And uh, Marta, of course, is trying her best to sort of work against the system while, you know, being forced to work within it. And there's only so much you can really do as a prisoner. Um, <laughs> she is. She's somehow getting information out to the, you know, the allies um, about, you know, what's going on in, in the concentration camp. And, and it's, you know, as as Liza starts to realize this, it, she really feels like it's a betrayal on Marta's part who she you know has has been kind to and you think part of Liza's kindness towards Marta is is a is a sexual attraction like she 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 wants Marta and and wants to you know dominate her both sexually and you know be able to tell her what to do um and and when she finds out that that Marta has been getting information out that's that's the real betrayal it's never explicitly sexual, but I de but I mean she chooses Marta because she likes her face, and then when Marta's uh, fiance is is in the is in Auschwitz as well, and occasionally I guess um, she manages to meet up with him, and then yeah, um, Liza gets very jealous whenever she sees that. Though her narration claims it's because she's lonely, but uh, I agree with you. There is a sort of unspoken sexual tension. Uh, I think it is worth note noting that um, Marta is not Jewish. Right. She's a political prisoner. Yes. She and very clearly by her camp's badge, which is, which was a, a sort of a strange choice, I thought, because uh, there isn't very much mention of um, genocide or really Judaism in this movie. Uh, we have one scene of Jewish children that are being led into a gas chamber, which is, you know, which is shocking. Uh, but and again, this was shot in Auschwitz, uh, on location only, uh, you know, a couple of years. So I thought that scene was especially horrifying because it's so quiet and matter of fact, it doesn't ratchet up the emotion in any way whatsoever. It just shows the kids being led in, into the gas chamber and them, you know, the guy putting on the gas mask and, 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 you know. Fill, filling the chamber with with deadly gas, and you know you've got the one child who who wants to play with the uh, the SS officer's dog on the way in, and then the and the guard allows it, and that's that's sort of the one point where our emotions are sort of manipulated a bit. But it's really this movie is interesting because all of the horrors are dealt with in such a quiet, matter of fact way. No, yeah, I agree. It's it's definitely not. Um... It doesn't try to, to over manipulate you with too much. And, and that was some of the stuff I thought was so well done in this. But yeah, I mean, what the, the film is uh, does beautifully is how subtle it is. It, there's all of these sort of small ways to, to kind of punch you in the gut on top of it being a film that's set in a concentration camp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like the love story between Marta and her fiance was was uh, really depressing, actually. 
I also really enjoyed how how they portray the the banality of, of evil that you know that Liza's just sort of bored never really wants to to do much and she thinks she's being so friendly and nice when she's just not like outright torturing people like that's mm-hmm. you know that's her bar that right. like well I let her I let her see her fiance or oh you know I let her uh you know, do one little thing that I knew was bad and I could have gotten her murdered, but, you know, I let it slide. And, and it's just sort of like, geez, like, okay, that that's your bar. Yeah. Which is very realistic. <laughs> and really the truth of how people lie to themselves and how um, the film is really about Liza's guilt. Mm-hmm. You know, that she sees this woman and that it's sort of left up at the end whether or not this actually is Marta, though I feel like it's pretty heavily implied that there's no way Marta could have made it out alive. Right. But she doesn't know for sure. And obviously she has this sort of PTSD haunting of this woman. And that's all her doing. And she, even if she's telling herself that she didn't, I was so good, I was so nice to her. But clearly this is something that is, is uh, you know, actively uh, stopping her from, from living. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, have, I don't have a whole lot to add, <laughs> really. I, was, I found it dissatisfyingly incomplete. Um, but what was there was show, shows a lot of promise. Well, it's funny that um, the that the next movie though, and and now that we're in 1965, uh, things seem to take a real turn for the wacky. Yeah. Um, so next is the Saragossa manuscript, um, directed by Wojciech Haas. <laughs> based on a very well-known, very popular piece of uh, Polish literature. Jan Pataki wrote it in uh, 1805 or something, and uh, so, and it's a it's major complex literary work um, that uh, it was, was deemed unfilmable, but, uh, but Wojciech decided he was going to give it a shot, and, and it's uh, quite an amazing movie. Jerry Garcia's favorite movie. You can tell. Yeah. <laughs> Although it's not uh, not as trippy as, uh, as as you might expect, I actually have um, I'd seen the later film of uh, Haas's The Hourglass Sanatorium. That's definitely trippy. Yeah, I brought that movie home, watched it, and then immediately watched it again. And I don't think I've done that with a movie since like 1986 when I brought home Short Circuit as like the first movie I ever rented <laughs> to watch on my VCR, like. <laughs> That's how much I enjoyed that movie. So I had, you know, that Hourglass Sanatorium had kind of raised the bar on uh, for, for Saragossa Manuscript for me, which I had considered, you know, it was definitely one of my favorite uh, movie-watching experiences uh, of, of my younger days. Um, I, was, I was slightly disappointed that the, that the Saragossa Manuscript didn't have more of that, that dream logic and, you know, sort of hazy atmosphere it's it's actually it ended up being a lot simpler than i expected for such a convoluted movie about uh, you know story within a story within a story within a story within a story yeah i don't even know how to sum up this movie <laughs> it's um i mean, it's set in the 1700s during the um you know some wars that were happening in in spain at the time 
I mean, it's got it's got kind of a Don Quixote feel to it. If Don Quixote did a dark Candide with Tristram Shandy. <laughs> Yeah. And the never ending story. With like, you know, Arabian Nights or Decameron or something like that, where it's just you get a whole bunch of unrelated stories within this framing device. Yeah. Then, and then they tell you the story of Barry Lyndon. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's all just filled with, with skulls and death and, and, you know, hanging men who come back to life and ghosts and uh, pairs of sexy women who, who want to sleep with their cousin. And it's... Uh, it, it's it, the best movie. <laughs> it's a great movie, and it, it is really funny. It's so Were you funny. able to untangle all of the storylines your first time through? Um, I definitely, by the end of the film, realized that there were definitely people that were coming back that I did not recognize showing up in the backgrounds of other people's stories. Right. Because like, th- this whole film is about, like, you know, like Tristram Shandy, it's, it's a movie about digression. So every time someone starts to do something, they get blocked or they get distracted and then suddenly something else is happening. And then as that's happening, they get distracted further and, and so on and so forth. Whether it's Alphonse, who's the, the main character, he ends up in this hotel where he has this encounter with these lesbian Muslim sisters who say that he is their lost cousin and, and they want to both marry him. And then as after they seduce him and, and sleep with him, he then wakes up exactly where he started under these this gallows where there are two dead men hanging and like a vulture just waiting for him to breathe that last breath. And every time he tries to get up and, and leave this area, like something else, it's like a video game. He keeps getting stopped. Like literally at one point, the Spanish Inquisition Monty Python style comes out and is like, we're, we're taking you down. And then boom, he's back at the gallows. Like, ah, fuck, like you have to reset the level. Yeah. It reminded me so much of, of Zork. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite text adventure game if anyone used computers in the 80s and 90s your, your description of it really reminded me of uh of edge of tomorrow though the that the tom cruise sci-fi movie that's just like that that uses the video game structure where okay it didn't work didn't work out that way the problem is that alphonse keeps drinking from that same poison goblet right <laughs> He gets tricked into drinking from it a couple times, but yeah. I, I want you to get into what you were saying in your review, which is one of the the best reviews I've read on Letterboxd. Definitely one of my favorites of yours about how this, how it's about life. It's about the meaning of life. This movie. Like, thanks, Bart. Um, well, I mean that it, it is. <laughs> <laughs> There's a great line in in the beginning of the second half of of the film where uh, you have this um, this like mathematics scholar. And this is also after the, those two sisters are also explaining about, oh, this is God's will or that he has this whole this whole cast. Alphonse has this whole cast of people that, that keep coming to him and interacting with him and, and sort of telling him like, oh, this is the mystical way to do it or this is the religious way to do it. And then they have this sort of very pragmatic, well, this is, you know, everything comes back to math. And, and then the scholar says, he says, a scholar has to has to solve riddles and, and the only way that he can solve them is is to go astray but every time he goes astray, he gets nearer to the goal every day, which I think is is one hundred percent the the thesis of the the whole film here, and that that basically like that's 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 life, right? <laughs> that life is is made up of these digressions and unkept promises and temptations and this sort of um, rude awakenings. 
that that Alphonse is continually experiencing. Like people are are pulling him left and right, and he has to just sort of deal with it. That and that's that's life. You're you're yeah. continually you know being distracted from the one thing that you want to do. You're continually uh, being forced to take a road that you didn't really want to take in order to accomplish something or to take up a challenge that you know maybe you wanted to do but it didn't end up where you wanted it or you you know you make the same stupid mistakes over and over and over again, which is really not so different from video games or, or from this movie where what is life if not making the the wrong mistake and waking up in the gallows with, <laughs> with a vulture hungrily staring at you and you're like ah oh, shit i'm back here again crap like i thought i had figured this out well, and it's also it's a real celebration of art and literature and and stories in general and and just fantasy and how our our fantasies uh are are far more interesting than our realities and the story's over when when uh, when Alphonse gets to Madrid where he's trying to get this whole movie the movie only exists in these in these um, you know, these fantastical stories and, or some you know less less fantastical some some more just naughty and you know about people cheating on their husbands and in, in, in very elaborate ways and but it's you know these these distractions and these stories and these you know things that take us out of our own lives are the are what really keep us going and are where where the the interest in in life lies. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is the the whole point. You know, and, and the point of anything that that we're a film about digression is that that digression is is your life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that the the accomplishment of making it to Madrid, whether or not it happens, it doesn't. It, you're not a failure for for not having made it, or even if you make it, then what? You know, it's like or like you know the end of the Graduate or something. It's like you, you've accomplished the thing. Now what? Back to this this moment of silence and this sort of pointless meandering repetitions of life and that are really what make up up life Mm -hmm. the point of the film seems to me basically that the the only glimmer of hope uh, and and the only sort of thing that you can reliably sort of point to as being like a true purpose is being able to capture these moments that the written word because the, the film starts off with uh, a war being fought in a, in a French town and the two people stop fighting in order to read this big crazy manuscript, which then suddenly you're with Alphonse and then Alphonse gets taken away and, and suddenly, you know, we're, we're learning about a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy. <laughs> At the end of the day, this three hour movie, it's it's like you've you've learned about what you know you've only learned about these sort of dull moments in in people's lives. But here it is immortalized, you know, in the written word on the film. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, which was which was glorious. I mean, like, and and that's one of those things too. Is this is like it's what I love about a director like Yodawowski, who's not not a '60s guy, but you know that you're sort of finding the the mysticism and, and the point of life in these these duller moments of of nothingness, and that you can either you know you can you can view those either as like the journey that gets you there through math, or or you know that the this is the true glory of of God, or you know however you want to interpret it. It always comes back to like this is the constant. You know, and there's no guarantees, but you know, you can you can either make your own way with math or God or however or not. <laughs> yeah, the life of the mind. Um, I, I I doubt it's a coincidence that uh, that Jodorowsky is is dressed like one of the Inquisition guys uh, in this movie in in El Topo, and it seems like. Oh yeah, it would not surprise me. The other thing is just how damn funny this this movie is. So funny, it's like laugh out loud funny. There's so many great comedic beats. Uh, the the main actor was was just brilliant. Well, he's the, yeah, that's that's Zbigniew 
Zbigniew Zabulski, who also, like Andre Monk, died tragically uh, young, died in a train accident. He, he slipped oh. on, the, on the steps of a, while he was boarding a train in 67. Um, and, and yeah, he's, he's terrific in this. He, he, he really is like the, the, the great Polish actor of the time. And he does, he pops up in, in most of these movies. He kind of look, he looks like, and reminded me of, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. I saw that after you said that in your review and he's, he's got the, he's got the same kind of range that, that PS does willing to, willing to make himself look pretty terrible, slimy but also really charismatic. Yeah, I this this there was just so much there was so many just funny beats that he he that was all him. It was either like his his expressions or just his his uh or like logic or like there's a scene where he gets put the, the Spanish Inquisition puts him in like an iron mask, you know, like a torture <laughs> device and he, and like they come to like take it off and no one can get the damn thing off. <laughs> That's very Monty Python. Yeah, exactly. Or like the the Kabbalist who doesn't like will not shut up, and like you can see him just like, oh god, this guy. <laughs> and just every time you're you're in a story, and then somebody in the story says, "Well, that reminds me of a story." It just gets <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> just gets funnier and funnier each time. It's like, oh, are they really going to go another another layer deeper into this onion? And they do. Yeah, this was such a brilliant. Like, I love this. This was wonderful. Yeah, um, I sh- I sure like that movie. But you did not like Barrier, which is the movie we're discussing next, from 1966. I keep keep thinking about like why like why don't i like i don't dislike barrier <laughs> it's just but it's funny because it you know here we are going from an already like a, a movie that you know saragossa manuscript it looks like a magritte painting it looks like a dali painting like it it really uh visually is is really wild and again it's really convoluted and 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 weird there's plenty of beats where you're like why is this here like it like and it doesn't matter <laughs> But then Barrier is um, what I would just call, it's it's just free jazz, the film. Yeah. I mean, it's got even more of a dream logic to it than Sargasso Manuscript. I mean, it's the, the stories in, in Sargasso Manuscript are at least motivated by something that's happened in the, you know, in the, in the, in the one layer out story. But, uh, but yeah, Barrier is just kind of uh, free association dream logic and uh it directed it's the third feature directed by Yerzy Skolomovsky who wrote Knife in the Water and uh Innocent Sorcerers um and it's actually the third in sort of an autobiographical trilogy that he made the uh the first two were Identification Marks None and Walkover where he himself plays the main character so he's basically playing himself in these movies for obscure reasons he wasn't allowed to play himself in barrier so he had to get another actor to do it but he uses like a photo of himself right <laughs> right it, it, he does get him the the main character at one point rips a poster off the wall and wraps it around his head and, and on the poster is this face of of Yerzy Skolomovsky and and uh, at, at one point the main character is wearing a, a Yerzy mask <laughs> <laughs> if it wasn't clear already that this was autobiographical it, it definitely is at that point 
But yeah, the, the, the problem with this movie is that you, you can't get any story out of it. That's I guess that's the big difference between this movie and the last one, is that the last one is all story, and this one is you're searching for a story the whole time and not finding it. I mean, you've got the basics of it are this guy is in medical school, and he decides that he doesn't like it anymore, and he wants to escape and just live his life, and he doesn't want to follow any prescribed path. He, he wants to sort of break away from what's expected of him and you know, break away from what all what everyone in Poland is doing. And you know, he's just got this sort of rebellious, nonconformist attitude, which sort of leaves him without any kind of direction at all. And he's just sort of wandering through this movie trying to figure out what he's supposed to do with himself. And there does end up being a, a romance in the movie that's sort of... Um, but it's like it's sort of he says to her like let's like we we're gonna pretend that we're going to get married and then uh, and it's like a, the the train uh, the tram driver this woman and right. she's like uh, why and 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 then sort of goes along with it I guess because she doesn't have anything else to do and then it yeah it sort of morphs into a love story yeah well they sort of have a flirtatious moment in the snow outside of her tram and. And they're trying to light a cigarette, and there's some there's some honest flirtation. He jumps on the tram and says, "I told my father I was getting married. Can you just pretend to be my fiance? And you know, all my friends are going to meet up at this restaurant. Can you come with me and 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 introduce yourself as as the person I'm going to marry?" And and then there's there's this huge set piece at the restaurant where they're they're the only ones in there, and then it fills up with a with a bunch of dancing aristocrats and wearing newspaper and, crowns. <laughs> Which I mean, it's all as he carries a sword. Yeah, this this movie is and attacks a car dressed in plastic wrap. <laughs> I mean, the this is this is truly a foreign film. Yeah, the the symbols in this are are you know not symbols that uh, we as Americans fifty years later will will have much connection to. I I wonder if if polls from the time thought, oh yeah, obviously this means this and that means that, but uh, it's it's a little hard to relate to what what's trying to be said in this movie. I mean, it was very Dada y, but not with any sort. Of, it didn't even feel like it didn't feel weird enough either. Either you know, it, it felt like it was trying to tell me something and or, or express some sort of feeling or emotion there's a lot of shots with crowds staring at one person but then he's doing like he's like climbing up a building where he touches a goose that's Dead tied yeah. to the building <laughs> yeah like and then he's like I but you guys couldn't do it and like that's the end of the scene like there's no <laughs> but it's so visually striking though and that's what really appealed to me about this movie it's just one incredible looking thing after another and i had no idea what it was all about but i love to look at it you know the scene where he where he's first, where he first escapes from the the medical school, and he's sort of running around in circles with this, this crowd of people who seem like they've come out right out of the factory, like they're leaving the factory, and he's sort of caught up in their in in their endless circling, and the and the movie sort of ends in the same place with them circling in a different direction. Clearly, he's trying to escape the rat race, but he just keeps getting pulled back into it. You know, there's because he can't he can't find a way out. And, uh, you know, he ends up marrying the girl who he's just, you know, going through the motions with, trying to, like, do what he's supposed to do. But really, this is, you know, he wants it to be a, a meaningless relationship, but it ends up being, like, she, she, she goes searching for him when, when she loses track of him. And in much the same way that uh, Basili goes looking for Pelagia in Innocent Sorcerers, and in the same way, he ends up just appearing suddenly 
when she when she stops looking. So he's got he's definitely got his tropes, but what they what they all mean. It's such a personal thing for Skolomovsky, and something just despite my incomprehension, it's just it it appeals to me. I went and sought out the other two movies in this trilogy and watched some other movies by him. I found it so compelling that I wanted to understand what what all this is about, what it all means, and I I have a better sense, but I I, I mostly just get a get a get an idea of of Yurzi's psyche and what uh, what he finds interesting and, and what themes he keeps coming back to. Yeah, I definitely felt like a. I think had I gone into this with any expectation. Again, I tried not to read up on anything. I, I mean, I looked at some of the stuff after I watched it, but I tried to go into all of this blind just for kicks. And this was kind of a mistake. Like, I think that this <laughs> probably was better to have gone in at least knowing something or maybe not watching, like, I think if this is the third in a trilogy or whatever. Yeah. Not that it seems like it was really a coherent trilogy, but... Um, no, no, it's not. But, you know, it, this movie, I don't know, it definitely it felt like he's raging against something, but it's not very clear to me. I mean, there's like the reoccurring trick cigarettes in the movie that the protagonist is smoking that, like, they all kind of explode every time. <laughs> They light up and there's the opening scene, they explode right in his face. And I felt like that's what this was maybe. And I don't know if that was his point that this was like this young man raging against something he can't control and he can't change. You know, the sort of impotent rage of, of youth, maybe, but um, it didn't feel very damning. I felt more that it was trying to uh, really actually lash out at other things and people like in some ways, I, I mean... One of the interpretations that I read of this was that it was about his his sort of critique or commentary on, on a sort of Soviet life. It reminded me visually of the man with the movie camera in some ways. And then plus all this sort of brutalist architecture. And uh, the, the I love that the crowd shots were as they run, there's like a, a mirror behind them. So it makes the crowds look like they're going off to infinity. And, you know, there was there was really there were definitely cool visual moments. But it, it, yeah, I <laughs> And it's really funny. A lot of, I mean, there's slapstick in it when he, when he rides his uh, his suitcase down the the, the ski slope, and that just worried ooh. me. <laughs> I think, like, I think he might have hurt himself. It, yeah, it looks it looked painful when he landed. But I, yeah, I mean, the whole thing just is. I found it breezy and funny more than you know angry and and uh, and lashing out. But I also think that lashing out is sort of a it's sort of an impotent rage. He tries to to break free from the society that he feels trapped in, but can't find any other direction. So you know, that in itself is sort of absurdly funny. And it's funny then to to go into our last movie here, which is the structure of crystals. <laughs> And yet I feel like we've now come right back to 1960 with Innocent Sorcerers. It, it, does, it doesn't look that recent. And all of these movies are in black and white, by the way. Yeah, there were color epics. In fact, it sort of shows you the uh, way we're, we're orientated with this podcast, that really the biggest Polish movie of the 60s was directed by uh, this old guard director, Alexander Ford, and it's called Black Cross or Knights of the Teutonic Order that um, was just a huge Polish hit. It was an international hit, and it's just a war movie set, you know, 500 years before, and it's also addressing the theme of you know, scrappy scrappy Poles are, are, are fighting against the uh, this, these cruel Germans. So it's still, in a way, addressing the, 
you know, what, what happened in, in Poland during World War II, you know, sort of a, a metaphor for the, the Warsaw Uprising and, and whatnot. And it was just a huge full-color action war spectacle. It's impressive to look at, but it's not my kind of thing, and it's got no bearing on, on the new wave stuff that was happening in Europe. So, you know, it's just my, it's my bias that I, I didn't drag a movie like this into, into our discussion. <laughs> I, uh, I, I went for the more uh, artistically interesting movies that were actually failures in, uh, in Poland. And, and, you know, ended the, career, the film careers of a lot of these people uh, in, in Poland. I mean, uh, Skolomowski did a French movie after this and ended up leaving Poland for good after his, his movie Hands Up, which he shot in 68, was banned. And, you know, Polanski left... Poland right after Knife in the Water because nobody liked it in Poland and, and thought he could you know, do a lot better if he moved to France and uh, and did. Or I guess he moved to England first. Um, did cul-de-sac and, and repulsion. But uh, yeah, Andre Vida made you know some movies in Yugoslavia and, and, and France in the 80s. So a lot of these people found that they could get bigger budgets and in international audiences and not have to go through the, the Polish Board of Censors if they made movies in other countries. So that's part of why, from a Polish perspective, the 60s were, were a terrible decade for, for movies. But for, for us outsiders who, who don't have the, the same context, it seems like, oh, there are plenty of treasures that were made in Poland at this time. So... I guess that's the point of this podcast, is to try and look at it from both perspectives, to see you know, what we can enjoy about these movies now, and also to try and see how and if they were appreciated at the time. And um, and it wasn't. It was until you know it was the late '60s when Christoph Zanussi was making movies like The Structure of Crystals, his first movie, that there was there was sort of this independent new wave sort of movement in Poland that sort of lasted through through the 70s or get a lot more interesting movies made then a lot more you know personal expressions and and you know discussion of 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 young people and 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 their problems and and how life in Poland was now in in, in the 80s things got repressive again but but the the 70s were sort of the when Poland finally got its its new wave and this this was one of the first this and the and the Skolomowski movies which made no money and were not embraced in Poland, but they, they definitely, you know, showed this sort of, they're a very new wave. Um, but, uh, yeah, you, I, I like the structure of crystals, but, but you, this was, this was your favorite movie of the week, right? So, so why don't you talk about it a little? Uh, let's see, was it my favorite movie? I, I was, I just thought this movie was really beautiful and it really, and it, it surprised me. I mean, maybe in some ways this is my knife in the water movie <laughs> because it's not a, an unsimilar plot, um, except that it's, it's not as sort of toxic. Maybe this is, maybe like now I'm like having a moment here. I'm like, I think this is exactly what you liked about knife in the water that I really loved about this because it was about people I actually cared about. It's about, um, this guy Merrick, uh, Marek uh, goes to visit his friend who now lives in uh, his old friend and an old colleague Jan who uh, lives in rural Poland and with his wife uh, Anna 
And uh, I mean, that's it. It's like he's going to visit his friend. He is trying to, I guess he's now currently working. They're, they're both um, scientists, I believe. And they're, uh, you know, where has he has, uh, Merrick has a, a pretty decent job. Merrick is uh, is doing research in, in crystals, actually. And he gives a, a presentation on crystals in the town where Anna and, and Jan live. Um, and you know, to a, an only slightly interested audience, <laughs> right? Yeah. And that's sort of that's like kind of the thing is that he they have he has this great friendship with Jan. They they're so clearly thrilled to see each other. There's a lot of these really nice and sweet moments of the two of them just sort of bonding and reconnecting after a long time. And Jan just showing him his life in this very rural uh, area where you know he's definitely the smartest guy for miles, <laughs> but he's totally uh, content to just be this meteorologist just who just there's nothing much happening there and so Merrick just can't understand what what Jan sees in this sort of pastoral uh, uh lifestyle uh and he's wondering why Jan's wasting all of his time and wasting his intelligence by not challenging himself and and just sort of settling for this life in the country but you realize that Mark this is all that Mark's got a, an ulterior motive in harping on this uh, this subject with with Jan continually. I mean, I think he does believe it that 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 Jan is wasting his time when he's got you know, all these brains he could be using for for you know these major scientific projects. But uh, but Mark is really there to to draft Jan to to come join him at his job and and do his research because they need him. He's got he's got some smarts that nobody else has, and they want him. The government wants him, and Mark is there to convince him to to come back to the city with him to leave his his rural existence behind and i don't i mean mark is does come off as as a bit of a jerk in this movie i mean i think he's you know looks down on jan and his life choices and he he flirts with his wife and there's a there's there's a bit of a love triangle there like uh like in knife in the water tries tries to kiss anna i i i liked mark because uh i'm i'm also a city slicker and <laughs> i know exactly how he feels you know judging people <laughs> which isn't to say i mean like you know i definitely like i've had conversations with friends where people say like well where else would you move if you could move anywhere and like to me the the idea of moving even to the suburbs would be death I think actually, personally, I'd do probably okay in a more rural area in as far as if I was left alone. <laughs> so I can kind of, I kind of get it. I don't think that he's coming from a bad place, particularly, even when he sort of has his flirtation with the wife, it doesn't feel malicious as much as it feels like he's in the moment. Well, it does that, that he's trying to, to find something to do. <laughs> <laughs> you know like he's and he's there for a while it seems and he's sort of connecting with her he clearly loves his friend uh like they're and and what i really loved about this movie was that just the portrayal of their friendship is just really sweet and really genuine there's a lot of just they're just walking and then they decide to play uh, tag or something or, or like there's a good scene where they're sort of screw, like like messing around and and on the ice and they they kick a dog by mistake <laughs> Well, well, they also have the, the you know pissing contest, just like in in uh, Knife in the Water. They they have a race to the the end of the the fence, and you know there is there's a competitive nature to their relationship too. Yeah, but it never feels toxic. Yeah. You know, like it's definitely like, and and I think that though the competitiveness is what is what uh, Merrick's trying to get out of Jan because Jan, I mean, like, you know, you can't watch this movie and not understand why he's out there because it's so beautifully shot everything the this even the fact that these guys are scientists and in this movie the structure of crystal everything feels very orderly and, and it feels very beautiful and very deliberate and 
it's wonderful to look at. So, you know, even these moments where like there's cows in the road or, or like these sort of uh, blank eyed <laughs> locals that live there. Uh, everything is just it, it kind of pulls you into under its spell. Uh, you know, you understand why Jan is there. But at the same time, Jan seems like he is uh, sort of wasting his life a little bit. You know, he seems he seems kind of depressed. He seems kind of out of it. You know, he, he doesn't seem to have any ambition. But at the same time, who cares? Right. You know, like, is, is it important to to accomplish uh, and, and have the same ambitions that Merrick has? He says, you know. I'm doing good in the world and making a name for myself. And for for Jan, that's just not important. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw it more as embarrassment on Jan's part than, than dissatisfaction with his life. He just, you know, looking at it through Merrick's eyes, he can see, oh, yeah, it does look like I'm wasting my life. But in, in, in reality, he's happy there. And when he's in his, his little shop tinkering around making useless gadgets, he's happy as a kid. And, uh, you know, the movie really comes to life when you see Anna in, uh, in the school teaching the kids. I mean, she's... For a lot of the movie, she just stays in the background and, and, you know, stays out of the conversation between these two friends. But when you get some moments where she really, like, comes to life and, and she draws, she drew me into the movie more than either of those guys did. And you, you do sort of see the draw of this of this life, this rural life. And I'm not sure if you were saying that the, the shots themselves were really carefully composed because I thought they had a real off-the-cuffness to them, sort of a, you know, documentary style. I thought maybe it was... I thought maybe the idea, the symbolism there was that uh, life in the city and, and with the government is, is structured and, and that's what you need to, to build anything. You need a structure and this sort of, you know, unstructured life in, in the country was, uh, you know, had its had its own appeal, but you couldn't possibly build to anything. I mean, there's that opening scene where you have this very clear plane, the screen's divided in half, and then you see a car go, slide along that line and it feels very mathematic. Yeah, that's true. Or the scenes are framed in the way where uh, the two of them have a, a pull-up contest. Again, you have this sort of bar through the middle. I mean, he's, he's taking all these natural things and he's sort of showing the the inherent structure and, and um, again, that sort of it, it, that preciseness of nature that, that you don't see when you look at it on whole, but you see when you look at it very closely, like under a microscope. And that's what these two feel like they're being they're being observed under the sort of microscope by us, by the by the audience. Yeah. So so that's what I mean by that. But yeah, I mean, like, it's definitely not as a, a city life in uh, in Merrick. I mean, like he he's like antsy to do stuff and like there's really nothing to to do, you know, and he's he keeps trying to push uh, off boundaries. And meanwhile, Jan is just totally content to not to not. Mm -hmm. And again, I mean, he, he seems like he seems like someone who um like he brings up Chekhov, you know, and he seems like someone who who sort of relishes in, in boredom and, and sort of appreciates the quietness of of just not having to deal with uh, accomplishment, which is <laughs> which is fine. It's the type of thing where, you know, you don't have to. I mean, there's plenty of people. I think most people really don't set. No, I'm going to change the world goals for themselves the way that Merrick is. But, you know, the people like Merrick have a very hard time understanding the people like Jan. And that was that's what I really liked, too. I love that they still had this really close friendship, that they had this really genuine human connection, even though they, they both don't really understand each other. Yeah. And it seemed like Marek, if he if he wasn't on this mission, would would never have bothered to reconnect with Jan, too. So I was right. I was pretty suspicious of him the whole time. Never, <laughs> <laughs> never quite warmed up to Marek. But maybe that's because I'm I'm the Jan in the story and you're the Marek. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just think I I I yeah I thought Marek was okay. I mean, he's definitely the he's definitely the sleazier um, 
and but that's but I don't think he was a bad guy. Like I don't think that even his ulterior motives were like, yeah, I want I want this guy to to do better for himself. But you know, Jan doesn't want to do better for himself. Like he thinks he's Jan is doing fine by Jan's standards, and so it's sort of that Jan is taking comfort in the limitations that Mark is totally balking at. For for him, Jan's peace of mind is failure, and that is an unfair city person judgment on other people. <laughs> yeah, I mean they're. There is this idea of wasted potential, but it's, I think the movie is arguing in a way that it's, you know, they're both working on two sides of the same coin as far as, you know, socialism goes, that Jan is sort of with the people, for the people, making his scientific advances on a local level, whereas whereas Mark's work is for the good of the of the state and the, for the, the good of everybody. So it's, you know, kind of a micro-macro level and whether, I think the argument is that you know, it's not it's not wasted potential for either one. They're both doing essential work. I mean, I've I've turned this into propaganda, and it doesn't feel like propaganda at all. But I can I can sort of argue how it's why this sort of new wavy movie with a with, with kind of a you know crazy score and and uh, you know shot in a shot, you know really personal seeming because it's it's definitely based on on Zanussi's interests he was a philosopher and a scientist he, he studied both in school and I, I, f I feel like it's a you know this is the way that that Poland was finally able to you know make this compromise between the personal expression of new wave and this, this state mandated subject matter I think I mean that that's interesting I think you're kind of right I mean it's definitely I think there's definitely something about Merrick Merrick is the one who's working for ego and, and Jan is working for you know, more the good of, of his community or, or even, you know, or even as small as the good of his wife, you know, who, who is clearly not as intelligent, but, you know, still, you know, still has every right to, uh, you know, be happy. But also has a passion for learning and teaching and, and wants to know about, you know, all of these, these advanced concepts that, that her husband knows all about. She's, she's no dummy, but she's just not on the, you know, she's not a, a, a super intellectual like these other two. Yeah, I, I thought this movie, I mean, like their their marriage just it was there was such a, a great warmth that that came through this movie and, and so many just beautiful sort of quiet moments or the outbursts of, of like sort of childish uh, silliness that I, I just really loved. It just was really uh, it's it, it's the type of thing you don't really see that much on on film, quite frankly, you know, that you don't really get these quiet moments and these sort of smaller story. I mean, you get smaller stories, but I don't know, like it, there was something that was very very laid back and, and sort of passive almost about this very just small tale of, of two people that you can either view as just a, a very human um, tale of, of friendship or you can view as, you know, even this, this sort of larger uh, socialist commentary. Well, you can have your, your warm, comfortable chamber piece and I'll, and I'll take mine, my cruel, ugly knife in the water. <laughs> <We'll> just... <laughs> We'll, we'll we'll mark the line in the sand. That's that's with, where the, that's where we each fall. Yeah. In the water. <laughs> exactly. So, do we have uh, what conclusions can we make about Polish cinema in the '60s? What uh, what what have you drawn? If if I've given you any kind of context at all, has that added anything to 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 what you what you thought about these movies overall? 
I mean, I, I was very impressed with the fact that they didn't, I mean, like, this is almost making me question, like, well, like, what is a new wave in some ways? Because this, like, the, the choices that you made for this, they all felt really consistent and coherent. And even though as we got further into the decade, it got wilder, even from content to, to visuals, uh, it's still, they all felt very similar. So it was really fascinating. And maybe this was just that you just happened to choose uh, these movies that worked out this way, but it was actually, uh, it, it feels like a wave of, of uh, stylistic sort of human tales, you know, it was, it was fascinating. And I mean, certainly, you know, mo all of these movies were pretty beautiful. I mean, again, we didn't really go for that. <laughs> I guess this is what happens when you when you choose a bunch of, uh, you know, like indie flicks, essentially. But um, yeah, I don't know. I was very I was incredibly impressed. And, and uh, it was also, uh, you know, all the sort of the, the jazz that kind of uh, seeps through most of these movies, if not kind of all of them in some way. We didn't mention the music in Saragossa Manuscript, which was amazing, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, so experimental and so crazy. And, yeah, yeah, it really didn't didn't fit with the with the setting at all, but also perfect in its own way. So yeah, I don't know. I, I was very impressed with the quality of of these. Even the stuff I didn't like, I could still point to things that I thought were very uh, obviously impressive about them. Yeah, I think I think in order to have a new wave, it, the movies themselves need to be embraced. While while they're being made, and you know, have have it be sort of a self perpetuating machine, and that's how it was with the French New Wave and the Czech New Wave, and you know they got a lot of international uh, interest, and 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 you know people were noticing these movements at the time, whereas these these sort of blips, these these interesting artistic movies that were happening in Poland were, you know, were not embraced at the time, and it's only in retrospect we can see that oh they, yeah there there are a bunch of great movies that were happening at the time um or not even a bunch but there are the several several you know interesting artistic movies that were made in poland at the time but it didn't amount to a new wave because it wasn't you know no no nobody was embracing them at the time so i guess um i guess that's that is where you need context for movies like these is if you just took a sampling of polish movies and a sampling of czech movies from the same time period you would say Oh yeah, they're you know they're they're in similar places, but but if you know the reality of the you know the the response and reaction to these movies when they were happening, it's it was a totally different scene. Yeah, that is kind of what's what's fascinating, I think, in movies about movies in general, and and in a, especially in a podcast like this where we're trying to do our best to to recreate some context. <laughs> Maybe not for this episode for me, but, um, you know, we're trying to sort of understand these these films in, in their time and then the merit of these films on their own. And, and, and all of these filmmakers are now seen as Polish uh, filmmakers to be proud of. It is it is kind of wonderful to, to look back and, and see, too. And then even to compare this stuff to all of the other things that we've we've watched for the podcast i mean they they really do feel uh they feel very unique and really some of the some of the best stuff that that we watched here is some of the the, the best movies that i've watched so far on the podcast yeah I'm, I'm really drawn to stuff from this part of the world in the 60s and i i hope we haven't turned people off with the, with the dryness and the and the unfamiliarity of, of these movies more of a cinema studies type feel to this episode because I want to get into the Czech stuff and the Yugoslav stuff and, and all of that really badly, but we'll take a bit of a break. We'll, we'll put in some, some fun stuff that everybody knows before we get to those. Well, as they, as they say in Poland, Hakuna Matata. Bon spridania. Dziękuję.
Ehi, hey, a pizza! <ride> You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conoscevo bene by Piero Piccione. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.